God's love never quits on us, and we're so very grateful. Uh, it's one thing to believe in the love of God when you're in a service like this and when you're riding high. Uh, it's another thing to know that that love will be there in the worst of days and in your final breath on earth before He ushers you into heaven. Well, at the end of chapter 3 of 1 John, the Apostle John taught us that Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross was the true measure of genuine love, and that like Him, we ought to give up ourselves for the sake of others, just on a daily basis in the way we interact. And that's what genuine love looks like. It's not just talk. It takes self-sacrificing action. So, for a born-again Christian, loving others is a way of life. There's no escaping this truth. Well, at the beginning of chapter 4, as Brother Ted brought out a couple weeks ago, John turns our attention to the doctrinal truth that underlies this hallmark of Christian living. If Christ, the Son of God, never came in the flesh to die for us, then the supreme display of true love becomes historical fiction, and it thereby robs us as believers of not only the model that we need for loving others, but also the power to do so because Christ's whole mission would have failed. Those who for any reason then would deny God the Son's coming in the flesh, therefore display the Spirit of Antichrist. They are anti-gospel, and having tested them, we are to reject such false teaching and the false living that's connected to it. Christ coming in the flesh and giving Himself for our sin, rising again, just as we've just celebrated in communion, is absolutely necessary to the way that we live among one another, the way that we love one another. And without that doctrinal, foundational, historical truth, we have nothing to build on whatsoever. Well, now in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12, John returns to this theme of love as the practical test of whether someone actually belongs to God. He has taught us that through the coming of Christ, the light of love is already shining. He has argued that anyone that's truly born of God loves the brothers and sisters, and now he's going to drive it further. He's going to declare that love is at the core of God's very nature. God is the source of love because this is intrinsic to who He is. And those who display love toward others are displaying who God is actually is. Follow with me as I read 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Now, I don't know if you could use some form of the word love more times in such a short space than John does here, 15 times in six verses. And he, he weaves together truth and action, doctrine and duty, reality and activity. And, and he does so in a way that fights against the Gnostic heretics who loved talking about knowledge and spiritual insight, but failed miserably, both doctrinally in their view of Christ's person and work, and practically in their neglect of self-sacrificing love. Their teaching was a mixture of pride, elitism, and lies. And as I read that description, I'm thinking, that's not gone away. You know, whenever you see people taking on an elitist kind of view and kind of superior to other people, beware, beware. And the lifestyle of these false teachers was self-centered and harmful. Their lives were characterized by selfish pride, not selfless love. So John calls us to a life of love, and he, he gives us three divine reasons, three God-centered reasons for living this way. And so while you see a lot of repetition in, in John, he's developing this a little bit further to where we have God-sized reasons to love one another. First, in verses 7 through 8, he points us to love personified, God's character. God's intrinsic character is out of love, and this motivates us to love one another. And secondly, love revealed. God's historic action, He has displayed um, His love to us in His sending Christ, verses 9 and 10. And then verses 11 through 12, love perfected. Uh, God's purpose, His redemptive purpose, is that His love would flow out through us. All of these are God-sized reasons, motivations for us to live lives of love. So, let's take up this first reason, love personified. We should love one another because of God's intrinsic character, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, and here's the clincher, because God is love. He addresses his readers as those that God loves and that he loves. This is really the, the common designation of believers that we see throughout the New Testament. It is the sphere in which we live. Um, as people come to interact with us, as they see us interact with one another, the thing that they should go away with, the thing that they should witness is that this, this is a community of love. And this is the way the, the apostles talk 
this is what the doctrine would teach. This is the duty to which they call us, this love one another, a reciprocal, a mutual love. So, right now, he's focused not so much on the, the love for the world, the love for those that we're going to share the gospel with. He's, he's really talking about the, the display of that gospel in the way that we interact with one another. In other words, it's one thing to give testimony to the go- gospel in words individually. It's far more powerful if somebody can watch you and other believers interact where they see the effect of the gospel in your lives. And so, here we have love one another, that one of the, the, the chief one another of the New Testament. In fact, all the other New Testament commands to love one another really flesh out this hallmark of true disciples of Jesus. Some years ago, we went through the one another passages, and, and this is what we found. And by the way, you'll hear a lot of these in our church covenant. We, we will serve one another in love. We are to be hospitable to one another. We're to minister our gifts to one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to exhort one another. We're, that means to come alongside and encourage people. We're to build up one another. We're to receive or embrace one another. We're to confess our sins to one another. We're to forbear with one another and forgive one another. We're to express genuine love to one another. We're to treat one another as family and friends. That's, that's a theology course, if you will, a a practical theology of what life ought to look like among believers. And as you look at all those kinds of interactions, they really are just ways of expressing the love that God has poured out in our hearts, because this love is from God. He's the eternal source of love, and that's why John says, whoever loves has been born of God. And so now he's going back to that theme of being regenerated, of God's life being in you through the Holy Spirit, we, we actually do what we are. And, and this is the way the gospel works. This is the way the saving work of Jesus works. Is he, he changes who we are so that then we can live out that new identity. So it's not, Christianity is not just about, oh, I got to add this stuff to do. I got religion. I got this list of things I got to do. No, Christianity says, no, you got to change right at the heart level, right at who you are. And as you change there, this God work that's happening in you, then it's going to change the way you talk and the way you walk, the way you interact with other people. Whoever loves has been born of God. His, his spiritual DNA is in you. His characteristic is in you. Whoever loves knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God. That's just like straight up or straight down. So, knowledge of God, and I think this is really important for us um, living in a university town and where education is so valued, a, a, a time and a culture that, that, that values education so much. Knowledge of God cannot and does not remain merely academic or philosophical, or theoretical. If we actually have an experiential knowledge of God, He marks how we live life, and it's a life of loving others. Now, we understand this, right? We, we understand that if you strike up a friendship with somebody, if you're spending time with that person, and and, and you're talking together, you're fellowshipping together, you're communing together, you're, you're doing things together, 
that relationship, that friendship is going to mark you. In fact, you can almost tell who's hanging out with whom by what kind of words they use, what kind of phrases they use, um, and, and even the kinds of things that they love. I mean, one of the things that happens, you know, when you get married is that you, you come in, two individuals, you're in love with one another, you're kindred spirits, but there's a lot you got to learn about one another. And, and you know, one of the things that happens is you come in and, and maybe you like this kind of food and your spouse doesn't, or vice versa. And it, it's interesting that over time, you, you kind of learn to like a lot of the same things. You find a lot of common ground, and, and the one person expands. Now, you're still the same person in some ways, but living with a person, being close to a person, changes who you are. You, we Sometimes, have you noticed with folks that have lived together for maybe two or three or four decades, they, they actually almost look alike. I mean, they almost look… Have you noticed that? I mean, there's just so much that's, that's similar, and, and this is what happens… Can I say it this way? This is what happens when you, it doesn't sound right to say hang out with God. This is what happens when you spend time with God. I mean, you know, some people are kind of maybe milk toast people. They're kind of bland. Maybe they wouldn't mark anybody much. But God is no milk toast person. God, God is a powerful, the, the most significant being in the universe. If you're going to spend time with him, you can't walk away unmarked by him. If you actually know him, it's going to change you. And, and we see this happen in a negative way. If, you know, we're very concerned. Parents, uh, you know, those of you that are teenagers, you know, part, part of the development that we see is that we, we want to kind of develop our own life and our own friends, and, and, and we choose them. And your parents, uh, because they care about you, are really, okay, so who, who did you spend the afternoon with? Oh, wh- where are you going to be? Who are you going to be with? What are you going to do at the party? Uh, why are they asking these kinds of questions? Because the people you spend time with change who you are. And Paul says it this way to the Corinthian believers, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So it's one thing to be like Jesus sitting with publicans and sinners and, and reaching them. It's another thing to get drunk with them. It's another thing to participate in their sins with them, where you start to become who they are. Well, instead of spending time with people that take you down and, and that cause your life to degenerate, how about spending time with God? Because when you spend time with God, you're going to take on His character, and His character is love. God is love. That's who He is his quintessential character is that of love. When you walk with him, you take on his loving character. This led John Stott, who's written a really helpful, short, pithy commentary on the book of 1 John um, in the Tyndale series. He says, for the loveless Christian to profess to know God and have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak or to have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. So, so love is going to mark those that actually are godly people. To be loveless is to be ungodly. And, and we've seen this theme developing through the book of, of 1 John. In 1 John 1, 5, we learn that God is light. He's revelation. He's truth. In 1 John 4, 8, God here. God is love. He is the self-sacrificing activity for the good of others. 
In 1 John 2, 9, we've already seen these two connected. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. In other words, light and love go together. Love is at the core of God's character and identity. It is not the sum total of who God is. You can't turn it around and say love is God. God is infinitely more than just love, but God does everything consistent with love, and God does everything consistent with light. They're not opposed. And what that means is that that God's love does not mean that God is agreeable to everything. That's complacency. That's moral laziness. That's that's somebody that's suffering mental decline. That's darkness, not light. That's not love. The light and love go together, intrinsic to God's very character. So let's, let's start here because, because we can't see God. Sometimes we struggle, especially if we're going through difficult times in life, we struggle to believe that God is actually love. In fact, we hear a, a song like the choir just sang, and you're like, all right already. His love never, it seems like his love gave up on me. I'm not sure God actually loves that much. I think maybe you're just kind of cheerleading yourself into thinking he does. But then we go to the Psalms, and they're doing the same thing. And then we go to a passage like this, and it's saying the same thing, that God's love is who he is. Is your conception of God in line with this reality about who God is? Think about how it could change your whole view of life if you actually believed, if you were relied on, if you could rest in the reality that God is is love, that God loves you deeply and sacrificially and constantly, that His love is a forever kind of love. What, what would happen to the way you perceive everything that's happening in the world and in your own life and how that, how that would change things? And then, and then secondly, if you're a believer, if you believe that you're born again and you belong to God, this leads us to the second question then. What, what is your heart attitude toward other believers? When you think about other Christians, when you talk about other Christians, when you talk to them, would, would, can you honestly say that, that that attitude, those words are, are an attitude of love and words of love? When you think about your activities of life and your, as you interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ, are those activities, can they be characterized by love? I mean, think about all the ways today that we communicate. Wouldn't it be powerful if every time a Christian opened his mouth, every time a Christian did a deed, every spirit that a Christian conveyed to other people displayed this deep love for his or her brothers and sisters in Christ versus the kind of junk that you often hear, 
versus the kind of attitudes that when we're not right with God, it's easy for us to convey the irritation, the cynicism, the slander, the gossip, all that kind of stuff is, is totally contrary to this kind of heart toward other believers. And when we think about the fact that if we say we belong to God and, and we know God and we've been born of God and that He is a God whose steadfast love endures forever, then the people who know us ought to see that in us. And, and strikingly, as you read the Old Testament especially, this quality of steadfast love is, is the way that God sometimes identifies who His people are. They are the people that show the same kind of loving loyalty. I remember years ago, Dr. Root, I think, uh, was the one that, that taught us. He, he defined the term kesed, is steadfast love, loving loyalty based on a relationship that issues in kind deeds. This is the kind of love God has, and this is the kind of love that we are to have toward one another because God is this way. Secondly, love displayed. We should love one another because of God's historical action. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So God's loving character doesn't remain divorced from historical expression. Now, you might think that it would. You might say, oh, well, you know, God is spirit. He's, he's otherly. He's He's so transcendent, nobody really knows. Okay, that, that would be true if God weren't love, because love expresses itself. God, God didn't stay unknown. God doesn't fail to interact with His creation. I mean, we see Him in the creation of the world, the moon and the stars, the, the animals, the plants, the, and, and mankind Himself. We see the love of God. We see the love of God displayed as He frees the Israelites from their slavery in the land of Egypt with the Exodus. We see His love displayed in bringing them into the promised land. We see His love displayed throughout the redemption story, all the different chapters of it, culminating in sending His own Son, His only Son, His monogenes, mono, one, and genes, you can, you can hear the word like gene, okay? So, His one of a kind Son, His unique Son. He sent His only Son into the world, and that tells me that His Son, Jesus Christ, was preexistent and that He was already God. So, through Christ, we become also children of God, but we did not exist before we were born into the world. He did. He did. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. This is the way John introduces Jesus. John 8, 58, Jesus Himself says, before Abraham was… I am. He had just talked about Abraham rejoicing to see his day. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. How do you know anything about what Abraham rejoiced in? He says, before Abraham was, I am. In John 17, 5, he prayed, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory, with the shining splendor that I had with you before the world existed. No wonder then that John calls him the unique son. We, we enter into fellowship 
with the triune God, but, but we are not a member of the Trinity. He is. God the Son, one of the three persons of the Trinity. Jesus is God the Son, therefore in the absolute sense, and as such, He is the unique Son. He's eternal, He's sinless, He's stronger than death itself. And God sent His one-of-a-kind Son that we might live through Him. 1 John 5, 11 through 12 is going to tell us this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. That's quality as well as quantity, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So, forget any gospels that leave Jesus out. There's no way to get right with God. There's no way to have eternal life any other way but through Jesus. God sent His Son that we might live through Him. And He's made us, this life that He's given us has made us, as Second Peter talks about, partakers of the divine nature. In 1 John 4, 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, first it says that we might have life in Him. Here He's the propitiation for our sins. So, so God has shown His love toward us not because we loved Him. So, when it said it this way, God's love is free, uncaused, spontaneous. We did nothing to merit His love, but we desperately needed it. He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This, this explains how God could maintain perfect justice. God is light. And yet give eternal life to those whose sin nature and sin deeds made them subject to death. You and I deserve death. You and I deserve judgment. So, how can God give us life and not be unrighteous Himself? How can He let us off? Well, Christ has paid the price. He is our propitiation. That means He satisfied God's righteous wrath on our sin. He took all the penalty. That's why, by the way, I can't add anything to what He did. Either He did it completely or He didn't do it at all. There's nothing I can add. God loved us out of His own character because of our need, not because of our merits. He loved us so much, not that He's willing to condone our sin. People today talk about love that way, but rather to die for our sin so that we could be rescued from it. Now, God's historical action of love in sending Christ. And you remember that, that that involved a whole host of historical actions, from the promise He made to Adam and Eve in the garden, to calling out Abraham, to selecting David, you know, all these prophecies that He made, all, all this preserving of Israel so that the line of the Messiah would be preserved, all these historical actions of love in sending Christ to pay for our sin and to give us life. That historical action of God calls us to love one another in practical, historical ways. 
Now, what is history made of? It's the same thing. Your life is part of history. What is it made of? It's made up of time. What was the history of last week for you? What will be the history of next week for you? Well, it will all have to do with how you use your time. How can you use your time, your history, in a way that looks like the love God has shown to us? And think about all the opportunities you have to do this. Husbands, loving your wives. Wives, loving your husbands. Parents, loving your children. Children, loving your parents. Like, how, how can you, if you're born again, you might be five years old, if, if you have the life of God in you, you can show love to your folks. You can show love to your siblings in practical ways. Maybe you're a student, you're in elementary school, or you're in junior high, or you're in high school or college. You, as you live your daily life, it ought to be a life characterized by love. How are you showing love to your classmates? Especially those you don't particularly like. The ones that get on your nerves, the ones that don't treat you right. Remember, Christ died for us while we were what? Yet sinners. So we're not talking about what people deserve. We're talking about imitating the God who has rescued us. So, so think about this. I mean, you can, you can have a business, an employee, your neighbors, all the relationships you potentially have. You could, you could show in historical ways, and by that I don't mean like you put it on a monument. I mean like in an actual sequence of time ways. You can show love to people. This is why, husbands, you're not supposed to be harsh with your wives and why you're supposed to sacrifice uh, yourself for her and, and, and live with her in an understanding way and honor her and value her. This is why, wives, you're, you're told to, to submit to his leadership, to, to follow his lead. Why? Because that's what God's called him to do. And if you're always bucking him, that's not showing love to him. I mean, everybody needs some, you know, somebody backing them if they're going to be able to, to lead. This is why children are called to honor their parents and obey their parents is, is for the Lord's sake. This is why parents aren't supposed to exasperate their children and be rough with them because you love Jesus and because of Jesus you love them. So, so many ways for us to show our love in genuine, practical, historical ways. Finally, look at love perfected. We should love one another because of God's redemptive purpose. Beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. Now, there were physical manifestations of God, but God is spirit. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. God sending His Son for us not only proves His love for us, it it puts us under obligation. If we've received God's love, we're under divine obligation to love one another. It's a command. There's no other option. And that command's not surprising to us. It's an old command. We find it clear back in the Old Testament. It's reiterated in the New. We, we feel the pressure of that command. In fact, we're told to owe no man anything except to love. Why? Because you can never love people enough. You're, you're always working at loving people more. Well, Jesus, John has already introduced us to the concept that 
if God abides in us and we abide in Him, we will love one another, that His life in us makes that inevitable. But what is nearly breathtaking is that John takes this mandate for love further yet and teaches us that when we love one another, God's love is perfected in us. That is, it is reaching its divinely intended goal. So it's not just that we're imitating, it's that that God's love in us is supposed to produce something in us, and this was His purpose all along. John has used this language before in 1 John 2, 5, and 6, whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So, God's will, God's plan, God's purpose is for His love in us to flow out through us to one another. This is not a contradiction to keeping His Word because the commandments are summed up in the two great commands, love God supremely, love your neighbor as yourself. Only when we are loving one another does God's redemptive love reach its intended goal to make the invisible God visible to the world. God's character is love. God is love. God has proved His love in history. But now He's given us a mission, a purpose, that we display His love in our love. We make Him visible by the way we love one another. And this is precisely what Jesus did. He made the invisible God visible. He made Him known. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, same language John uses here, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And the making Him known is, is the word for those who we, we talk about exegesis in our Bible study, exegetical Bible study. What that means is you're, you're drawing out of the text what's there, you're explaining what's there rather than, and making it known rather than putting into the text whatever you want to put in there. That's eisegesis into the text. Exegesis, draw out of the text. Well, Jesus, Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus made known the God who is. He made known the God who is there. He exegeted Him. He revealed to us the God that no one has seen because God is spirit. He explained Him in a way that no one else could. So John is using the same language here that he has used of Jesus. Like Jesus, we are to make the invisible God visible. We do not and cannot do so to the degree Jesus did in his sinlessness. But Jesus himself said that all people would know that we are truly his disciples, his followers, his learners, if we love one another. He was on mission, and so should we be. We often look at Jesus' statement, you know, this is how we know whether or not you're disciples, just in terms of testing whether we belong to God or not. But our text this morning indicates that loving one another also not only talks about identity, but it talks about our purpose. 
the goal, the mission of God's love toward us. We are made in the image of God as human beings. And that image was marred by our sin. God the Father sent God the Son to satisfy the wrath of God on our sins so that we could be delivered from death and recover life. His life in us transforms us from the inside out, restores His image in us, grants us the power to fulfill our created purpose. His love spawns life in us right down to the roots of who we are, and those roots produce fruit in our lives. That's the point of a fruit tree fruit. Not just the shade, not just the green leaves, the fruit. If you put an apple tree in your backyard or a peach tree in your backyard, it's so that you can get apples off of it and peaches off of it, okay? Well, God has done what he's done in us, giving us his spirit to produce spiritual fruit, and heading the list, according to Galatians 5, is love. God loved us the way he did and does so that we would shine out who he is through loving one another. How else is the world to believe that the Father actually loves us enough to send us his Son? In fact, this is the way Jesus prayed in John 17. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Loving one another authenticates the gospel message. It makes God's love visible. It proves the gospel of Jesus actually works. So our loving one another is indispensable to fulfilling the gospel mission given to us by Jesus. And no wonder John is telling us then that when we love one another, God's love is perfected in us. It is reaching its goal so that we can be effective ambassadors for Christ. This is the way Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christ redeemed you, if you're a believer, to fulfill a God-sized purpose. And I think we naturally want our lives to matter. But your life, the, the measure of whether your life matters, whether it's actually reaching the God-intended goal, is not whether there's some monument in your name. It's not whether that you're rich and famous or something like that, some kind of spectacular deed. It's, it's going to be measured in the daily, practical life of love that you live toward those around you. The more you live like that, the better others can see who God actually is. You're a chosen people, Peter says. 
You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into light. So shine. Show your family and your friends and your church and your community and your world who God is by loving one another. Love is personified in God. It's His intrinsic character. It is revealed or displayed in Him. It's, it's His historic action through sending Christ, and it's perfected in us. It's God's redemptive purpose in saving us. God help us to love one another. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love to us. May we walk in love as your dear children. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.